0: worry and what fear does and why just saying don't worry without accounting for the presence of fear and trauma. I think it was a really good word. Something also interesting happened. The text that, uh, as as I kind of planned the series for the summer, the text I gave Jonathan, he did that text and then the one after that I originally had planned for uh, this Sunday. But as he did that, I saw the connection between the two passages that I didn't notice, which was really cool. And so I thought, I'm gonna take a pass as well at that big long section. So we're gonna look at Matthew 6, 30, uh, 19 to 34 this morning uh, and to have another pass. There's just too much good stuff here. And as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, if you've been with us uh, through the summer, you know this. And if you haven't been, welcome, glad you're here. Uh, but you know we've we've, Try to keep it framed in uh, an understanding of theology of the kingdom. Jesus' big announcement, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come here. Repent and believe the good news. This is the big announcement of the kingdom. And this really is important for us to understand what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. There's been kind of some historical ways to approach the Sermon on the Mount. The first approach has been... Uh, More or less, the Sermon on the Mount is an ethic we can and should do. This often is a mainline, uh, maybe more liberal traditions approach. Sermon on the Mount is good because that's an ethic we should do. The problem with this view is that uh, we can't. It's very hard to love our enemies, especially in our own power, and to turn the other cheek, and to give our cloak, and to take the plank out of our eye, and to see the world that actually the, the best off people are those who are poor in spirit and meek. All, all of those are things just to aspire to they are impossible. So that's that's a, a problem with that view. The second view is often the evangelical or kind of conservative tradition, and that is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is that it's unrealistic, and it's designed for, for you to reveal uh, to to, to be revealed that you don't have enough righteousness, and so you'll call out for God's higher righteousness. Now, the problem with that view is, it leaves us with like, you're not actually supposed to live in this stuff. It, it's only designed it is, to kind of cause low-grade despair, which is okay, because then you'll call out to God. Uh, so that, that view is a problem as well. Uh, there, there's another view, it's often an uh, Anabaptist tradition, that the, the Sermon on the Mount is an ethic that happens when the kingdom comes in a person's life, when when this kingdom that Jesus keeps announcing and calling people to enter into and to trust, when that collides in a human life, the Sermon on the Mount describes what that life, that new way of human looks like, the new way of being human. So this is what we see then in the gospels, Jesus (laughs) announcing and demonstrating the kingdom. He's announcing it all the time with stories and parables saying, the kingdom of God is like dot, 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 a mustard seed or often agrarian story. So he tells people stories because he's like, I want you to reimagine what God's kingdom is like. He doesn't just talk. He demonstrates. He demonstrates. So the kingdom of God is, uh, is what life looks like when God is ruler. And so when God rules, what life looks like is bodies get healed. And those who are outcast and on the margins get brought in. And prisoners are set free. The oppressed are no longer oppressed. That's what happens when God rules. And so Jesus is announcing and demonstrating this. And he's he's saying this rule, this kingdom of God is available. It's at hand. It's near. It's not just for the future. Uh, Years ago I was teaching on the kingdom at a camp. And one of the awesome things about teaching at camps and not just being here, which I love to be, by the way, love being with all of y'all, but is uh, you get to be with seniors, and I love being around seniors. And so, I was teaching about the kingdom of God, and I asked, "Does anyone here remember? If you came from a farm, do you remember when electricity came to your farm?" <laughs> there were some who put up their hand. Yep, I remember that. So I talked to them after afterwards, and we had stories of the day electricity came to their farm. It's amazing. When electricity came to the farm, it altered all relationships. Every aspect of living. It, it altered daylight and darkness. It altered the relationship between clean and dirty. And hot and cold. And work and leisure, but in order for electricity to be of any use, people need first to say, "Yeah, you can come on my farm. We'll, we'll get the wires. That's how it works." Okay, get the wires, and uh, we'll 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 even if I don't understand it, I'll trust it, and and then I'll take practical steps to learn to rely on it. And so in the Gospels it's really clear the kingdom is not just something to be accepted now and enjoyed later. I think I've got an illustration. Do I? Yeah. You know, popular view is like, it's kind of like life insurance, the kingdom, or eternal life. You kind of just make sure you got that covered off for after when you die, you you have eternal life. Whereas Jesus' announcement of the kingdom, is like, it's at hand, it's here. There's an internal kind of life, an indestructible life, a way of being human that starts now, it's at hand. Uh, And so, imagine how ridiculous it would be for someone to hear the announcement of electricity, to learn this new technology is available, who goes to the trouble of installing it, but never relies on it or uses it. How do you enter then this new system, repentance, reimagine your whole life? So, repent for electricity is at hand. Repent from ice boxes and discover a refrigerator. And repent of kerosene lamps and discover a reading lamp. There's a new power at hand which alters everything. Now just to update the metaphor, I this will date me, but I, uh, I remember distinctly in grade 11 computer class learning how to type and I think we were learning some DOS. And we were just learning computer. Um, and it was very novel. Okay? There's, no, there's no internet. Okay? This was very novel. I remember leaning over to my friend saying, this is such a joke. I'm never going to use this <laughs> <laughs> So with my super accurate predictive powers, I knew this whole computer thing would just blow over. And uh, this was a waste of time. But eventually, an ongoing work of repenting <laughs> uh, and learning to rely on Internet device. So when you come under God's rule, something happens. With a with a new king comes a new kingdom, a, a way of being human. And with that kind of kingdom comes a way of life and a culture and a practice and, and, and certain kinds of emotions. There's a new king with a new kingdom and a new way of life. One more story, and we're going to jump into the text. I, uh, a couple weeks ago, I just came back from Kansas City and my kids are very interested in America. How's it in Trump land, one of them said. And so we were sitting around the table on Sunday, and I was telling them about Trump land. I was in middle America. And uh, it was at a conference that was. It felt very important to be at, because it was a very American conversation for, for churches, talking about what does it mean to be the church in this time, where it would appear that the gospel is being co-opted. Uh, that there's a civil religion going on here. There's a there's a conflating of evangelical Christianity and hard right politics. And uh, so I was telling them, it was, it was really amazing listening in on this, and one of the speakers said, you know, uh, I had to explain this to him: the elephant and the donkey, There's these two parties, and I'm not into elephant or donkey games, the speaker said, I'm into the, the lamb. And so, My youngest son keeps asking me, so our team is the lamb, right? Team lamb? Yeah, we're on team lamb. Uh, And so Jesus doesn't get co-opted by right or left. He keeps breaking that polarization. I said there's an interesting thing, a phenomenon in in the States. And we don't have this in Canada, but there's a Christian flag. And when you're an American, flags are very important. They can't touch the ground, and the American flag has to fly highest. And so what happens for many churches, because they have their flag, uh, and it's unintentional, but it's a huge symbol. You got a a flag of country flying over the Christian flag. Well, later that day we were walking and I was telling them another story about how earlier that day I was driving in an Evo and I found a set of AirPods. You know those uh, Bluetooth? Earbuds that Apple make, I found them in an Evo. And uh, there was no case there. And so I thought, hmm, do I call Evo? And I didn't call Evo, I went to Craigslist and I was looking, can, can you get just the charger for these? Uh, AirPods, I think, are like 170 bucks. i like, I can't afford these, I want these, they're cool. And so I'm telling my kids this, and they're like, kind of looking at me. And I said, "Yeah." And I was, so I was researching how can I get a charger, and then I was researching, can you use the Find My iPhone app to locate where AirPods are? Should anybody be trying to track these down? And I said, "Yeah." And then I I did eventually phone Evo, and I said, "Has anyone reported uh, AirPods um, missing?" And a kid that's interesting that you didn't volunteer, that you found the AirPods. I said, well, yeah, because I, I wasn't going to say I had them. I just wanted to know if they'd been found. And uh, I asked Eva if I could share this. And uh, she says, well, turns out a lot of us are tempted to fly a flag over the Christian flag. For some of us, we just have AirPods on our flag. <laughs> Absolute singer. <laughs> In McLean Park, she just, uh, but called out an allegiance, an allegiance uh, t- to saying you-, you care more about AirPods than honesty and integrity. Um, called out a-, a way of me getting co-opted. So This is the tricky thing. I find as a Canadian, it's easy to look down to her brothers and sisters and go, what's going on down there? Uh, kind of co-opting. But it's hard to see it in my own life. So I need, need a friend or a daughter to say, hey, uh, you're getting co-opted here. So, here we are in the text. Let's uh, get going uh, <laughs> as we consider king and kingdoms and the way of life that come with them. Matthew 6, 19. And first, pray for grace to... Rest in Your presence, God, to consider, to imagine, maybe even to repent. Uh, thank You for the good news that is always better than we give it credit for, and we ask for the grace to behold in this moment, in Jesus' name. So, verse nineteen, Jesus says, "Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth." Where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So we have a teaching here of Jesus. He's warning his students, anyone who's considered apprenticing their life to him, considering, does this way lead to flourishing? He's giving a teaching about security, where security is found. And, and the word treasures here, you know, could obviously involve possessions, um, but it, it could be anything that we attribute value to. Whether or not it actually has value or not, it could just be something you attribute value to. And if it has value to us, then we go to great lengths to protect it, to guard it, to chase after it. And so treasures aren't just material things, it could be a reputation, a significant relationship, a business, Bitcoin miner. Uh, we all have treasures, and this is a very key part of being human. Treasures are so close to the core of your heart. And how do we know this? Well, that to pry in on someone's treasure—that's that. That's there's an invasion of privacy. That's what when you have a, when you're a kid and you have the cigar box with your little treasures. Anyone have a, a box as a kid that you have little treasures that you kept, Little feathers, or hockey cards? Or, Little My Pony uh, brush, or whatever you got, the chap. Uh, these are your treasures. You don't have a right to know what my treasures are unless I tell you. Why? Because because it's a part of intimacy and of allowing someone in to see and to get to know your treasures. That's, that's why when someone's on your phone and they, they go, what, you have this album? You're like, give, give me that back. It's, that's my guilty pleasure. It's totally fine to like ace of bass. <laughs> <You know, laughs> So if if you get to know someone's treasure, you're getting to know something really intimate and and essential to them. And we reveal our treasures by what we try to protect, secure, keep, chase after. And sometimes we go to absolutely crazy uh, lengths to protect or keep or seek a treasure. It could be a really weird thing where you want to say, look pal, It's time to retire that old raggedy t-shirt. Like, I get that it's from your old softball team days and you feel sporty when you're wearing it, but see-through cotton is not a good look on anyone. Like, you just gotta release that treasure. Anyone have that? Got an old t-shirt? No, okay, it's just a few of us. Alright, so sometimes we treasure weird things or even worthless things. A trinket, an old letter, a photo, or a dead-end job. On an opinion of a friend or a harmful addiction. Treasures. Jesus isn't just giving a word here for collectors or for pirates. This this applies to minimalists and the rest of us. What's going on in your treasures? Because if, if we're talking about treasures, we're talking about our treasurings, our loves, our values. Uh, I was reading Dan or a counselor, uh, this week, and he says this. He says, We always choose what we value most, even when our choice does us harm. We won't change our behavior until we first recognize what we value most deeply, and then honestly face how our passions reinforce what we believe. We can change our beliefs, but doing so won't alter our behavior until our beliefs transform our values. We can change what we do, but the changes won't last if our values and convictions are not transformed. Next slide. Each of us can begin the process of transformation by wrestling with these questions. What moves me most deeply? What do I most enjoy doing? Where do I find the greatest pleasure and joy? What is it about this activity, idea, or person that brings me such a sense of life? Now, Andrew's essentially saying, that to actually, just espouse beliefs, uh, don't, don't matter because they're going to keep getting undercut by your operative loves your values treasures, values what you love reveals who you are that's why Jesus is addressing this and he, and he's saying a specific thing about treasures don't store them up uh, in a way he's like, he's saying let me help you be strategic about this when you store things up on earth it's, it's not actually a smart investment why? because You can't argue with moths and corrosion and theft or even the reality of hard drive failure or one's health or just entropy in general. All of these things by nature will take from you no matter how much you store up. And I wonder if Jesus, if he was teaching this morning, if he might say something like, um, hey, Vancouverites, Consumerism will ultimately let you down because it over promises. It promises more than it can deliver. So in your lifetime, in this moment, get a lead on things by putting all your satisfaction somewhere else. Uh, Leo Tolstoy. This is a portrait of Leo Tolstoy, actually taken by Rachel Pick. Uh, Rachel does amazing uh, <laughs> portraiture, you really need to see her work. That's actually not a portrait of that Rachel did. This is though. Next slide. That's one she did, um, which is very good. (laughs) Let's go back to Leo. Okay, so Leo Tolstoy, um, Leo fell into a real long, suffocating depression because he discovered what Jesus is talking about here, that everything he valued would die and be lost. And this was after... Becoming one of the most successful literary masters our world has known. And so the worldview of the elite and the educated of his day that he was immersed in just didn't provide him hope. He got it all and still hopeless. And it was through actually a discovery of the teachings of Jesus, stuff we're actually looking at here, that he found an alternative vision. And this alternative vision, or you could say, alternative kingdom started leading them out of hopelessness and meaningless. How? Well, this alternative vision of things like lay up treasures in heaven. Well, what does that mean? That sounds more like just classic religious talk that's devaluing the material world and elevating the spiritual world. Is that what Jesus is on about? No. What Jesus is on about is that the most important commandment throughout Scripture is treasure God more than anything. This is what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Treasure the living God. If you find your security in something, you're only secure as that thing is secure. So if it rises and falls and fluctuates and it's fickle and it corrodes, not a good place for security. But if you put it in a God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, who is faithful that's a better place for security and it's interesting out of treasuring this God we learn to treasure what God treasures and namely that's people God treasures people and so invest your life Jesus says in what God is doing which cannot be lost and invest in people spend your time and your talent and your treasure on people and the text continues let's go next slide after this Where Jesus says. At the end he says, you can't have two masters. (laughs) Next slide. There we go. Yeah. No one can serve two masters, either you hate the one or love. shouldn't have two masters. Uh, it's, really, it's, not, it's not what the text says. You actually can't. He's being very binary here. You may be like, you know, I'm more of a both-and kind of person. I love both-and, not either-or. I think it's more both-and. No, you can't. You cannot. You can't have uh, two kings. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work. It's so binary now. So why does this matter? Well, what you treasure ends up ruling your life. To put another way, what you treasure reveals who your king is, and with any kind of king or ruler comes a kingdom, and that kingdom comes a culture, and a a, a pressure, and a shaping, and a formation to be a particular kind of human. And so, you have to pay attention, first of all, to what you're treasuring. And then, verse 25: Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? There's a trade-off here now. When you're ruled by treasures, food, here food, clothing, your body, the trade-off is a certain kind of anxiety. One author says anxiety is a barometer of one's God. That tells you what I'm trusting in. Now, Just to have a quick caveat, Jesus is not speaking here about anxiety disorders. So, for those of us who are in the midst of that, experiencing panic attacks, uh, this is not heaping on to those of you who are saying, well, you just shouldn't have an anxiety disorder. Okay? So, th- that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a specific definition. I want to give you the word it's Mary That's the word there for anxiety, Mary and it's a compound of two Greek words, merizo, which means to distract, to divide, to draw different directions, and new, the mind. So merimineo means, first of all, to, to, to be pulled in a variety of directions. And I want to focus in on one particular word, the first one there, distraction. I may be walking a bit into the lion's den here on this one, but uh, let's look at distraction. Something's happening to us and uh, I think I can say for sure, I'll just talk, something's happening to me. Amy's been pointing it out to me. I can't watch a full movie without getting on my device. I, I can't in- interact with one device, I'm usually interacting with two. Uh, I, I've had phone, laptop and movie uh, on the screen going at the same time. Um, something's happening to us, to me? And Nicholas Carr writes about this in The Shallows. It's a bit, already a bit dated because he's using the word the net. But I like that, it's kind of nostalgic. <laughs> what the net seems to be doing is chipping away from my capacity for concentration and contemplation. Whether I'm online or not, my mind now expects to take in information the way the net distributes it in a swiftly moving stream of particles. Once I was a scuba diver in the sea of words, now I zip along the surface like a guy on a jet ski. What an image. Just skimming over the surface of my own life. Ever-decreasing attention spans. Like an inability to be present. I think it's fascinating where people like Simon Sinek have suggested we should have a legal age for social media and smartphones like we do for alcohol, drugs, and gambling because they are altering brain chemistry. Those dopamine hits are actually doing stuff to our brains. This is so new, and we're not even sure what it's doing. Other authors talk about the attention economy, how attention is the commodity now, is the chief commodity. Heard a phrase this week, fracking for attention where ad agencies, and uh, social media companies are, are seeking to find the untapped reservoirs of resources, pulling out what was previously unreasonable, getting that untapped attention in the small little minute uh, little moments in a day. We know, you know, we're targeted, we're tracked, there's algorithms, and it's all designed to hijack short-term attention, to convert your attention Into long-term allegiance to a brand or a product. uh, This is the attention economy. Uh, One other thing, just to really walk into the lion's den here, I want to talk about Netflix for a moment. It's interesting. uh, Nowhere else in life, nowhere else, is binging seen as a a positive thing or something we congratulate someone on. Uh, What'd you get up to yesterday? Oh, I had my day off. Oh, great. What'd you do? I, I like, binged all of season five of Game of Thrones. Oh, sweet. Good for you. What? Binge, like, way to binge. In any any other sphere of life, we would say, oh, that's concerning. (laughs) Binging as a positive thing. This is strange. Tim Wu says, a Netflix poll found that 61% defined their viewing style as binge-watching which meant two to six episodes at a sitting. And Grant McCracken, a cultural anthropologist paid by Netflix to investigate and promote The Habit reported that TV viewers are no longer zoning out as a way to forget about their day, they are tuning in on their own schedule to a different world. Getting immersed in multiple episodes or even multiple seasons of a show over a few weeks is a new kind of escapism that is especially welcome today. Be interesting just to pay attention to that one thing if you have Netflix, just to do an audit and Netflix, audit on a week, and, and just do the uncomfortable thing of adding up those hours. Where we give attention, where we pay attention, results in what we're, what we're filling our imagination with. There's a trade-off. With a king, a treasure, comes a kingdom, and with that kingdom comes practices and forces that form me, form my actual desires and shape me into the kind of person I am and shape my imagination, my ability to see. Ron Rollheiser, who got a quote because he's Canadian, and I love him, and he makes me uncomfortable. All of the above. Narcissism accounts for our heartaches, pragmatism for our headaches, and restlessness for insomnia. And constancy of all three together account for the fact that we are so habitually self-absorbed by heartaches, headaches, and greed for experience that we rarely find the time and space to be in touch with the deeper movements inside of and around us. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God in spirit, we would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us. than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. So with me It's a zinger. Life, Jesus says, is more than food and drinking and clothes, to which the average Vancouverite says. Is it, though? <laughs> it is a weekend actually more than brunch?
1: <laughs> I don't know.
0: I, I'm not so sure. See, there's a trade-off with the king comes the kingdom in the kind of way of life. And so then there's particular kinds of poverty that come with certain kingdoms. See, there's a way of being rich in every kind of option but poor in joy. To be rich in autonomy, but poor in reciprocity. To be rich in gadgetry, but poor in wonder. To be absolutely loaded to the gills with cynicism, but poor in trust. There's trade-offs. It just depends on what kingdom you want to live in. And so. Again, I'm not talking about anxiety disorders, but I'm talking about this mermoneo. Why am I so anxious? Could it have anything to do with my treasures? Could it have anything to do with my imagination, my distraction? Could it, could it at all have anything to do with 12 hours of Netflix? Jesus says, look at me don't sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them? Are you not much more valuable than them? And then see how the flowers of the field grow. So, look and see. See. This is the first call, invitation. This Flows out of Jesus' experience of life. I think he's inviting us into something that was part of his life, which was paying attention to the little things. He's like, there's a joy that's found when you encounter reality. When you encounter these little things that can produce for themselves and yet they're provided for. See that. See birds. Like, why is that relevant? You know, why, why birds? He's not quoting like ancient Jewish theologians. He's like, I want to quote some birds here for you. I want to take you to school. Let's go outside. Notice birds. They don't lay up treasures. They just receive treasures. Watch them, watch those birds. And the flowers, why flowers? Th- this is actually really important for those of you who value beauty. Those that value an aesthetic quality to life. These are our Enneagram fours and our designers and our artists. Jesus is saying, yeah, I know you value beauty. At whose idea was it? Like crocuses, lilies, you like that? Yeah, came up with that. What about polka dots and leopards? idea. Ridiculous necks on giraffes. It's not your idea. He's like, pay attention to this. I know that you need it. So what we're talking about here is attention over distraction. i got to read Mary Oliver. When I walk out into the world, I take no thoughts with me. It's not easy, but you can learn to do it. An empty mind is hungry. So you can look at everything longer and closer. Don't hum, don't hum. When you listen with empty ears, you hear more. And this is the core of the secret. Attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. What you love, you'll tend to attend to. And what you attend to, you will become says we must pay careful attention therefore to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Attention over distraction. What you pay attention to, you tend to notice, and what you ignore tends to go unnoticed. There's this old Midrash story about uh, the parting of the Red Sea, which was Israel's biggest miracle of all time. And this Midrash story has these two characters, Reuven and Shimon who experienced the miracle totally different. Apparently at the bottom of the sea, uh, though it was safe to walk on, it wasn't completely dry. A little muddy, kind of like the beach at low tide. And Reuven steps out into it and says, what's this muck? And Shimon scalps, there's mud all over the place. This is just like the slime pits of Egypt, replied Reuven. What's the difference, complained Shimon. Mud here, mud there, it's all the same. And so it went for the two of them, grumbling all the way across the bottom of the sea. And because they never once looked up, they never understood why on the distant shore everyone else was singing songs of praise. For Ruvan and Shimon, the miracle never happened. There's a, there's a difference, and the difference was just what you're paying attention to. So it's impossible to be walking in the midst of a miracle and be It's it's possible to be in the midst of God delivering you and go, yeah, but mud. Yeah, but pain, not on my terms, not on my time. Yeah, oh. You're totally missing the everyday miracle. And Jesus is saying, see, look. Actually, what you do with your eyes matters. Not just spiritually, physically, where you attend. Go to school. Pay attention. Learn to train and feed your vision and imagination to behold the everyday miracle. And and Jesus later says in in verse 30, I love this bit. He he says, you of little faith. And we're pretty sure that's a made-up word, little faiths. Uh, This is the word oligopistoi. You should just say it. Let's say it together, one, two, three. Oligopistoi. Oligopistoi means you little faiths. And and he uses it about 10 times. And it's probably a nickname that Jesus created to kind of gently chide his apprentices. Oh, you little faith. You have little trust. You have little vision. Seeing the kingdom that is available and at hand, the everyday miracles. Oh, you Oligopistoi. <laughs> Can't you see the connection, the corresponding connection? Uh, connection between your anxiety and anger and despair that comes with the kinds of things you've been treasuring? The oh, oligopistoi. Are you forgetting that you have a father who knows what you need and has made provision for those needs and has never once failed you? Oh, you oligopistoi. I think it's important to hear the heart of Jesus in the text. There's playfulness here. There's some chiding. But the tone isn't oligopistoi. It's like, ah, oh, in Jesus' God-drenched vision of the world, he's like, this is so obvious. The kingdom's at hand and it's available. Ah, don't look at this toy. We're not called just to see, but to savor the kingdom. Savor two things. Jesus is longing to impart a vision of a generous and loving God. He's not talking about a God who's distant, A God who withholds, a God, again, who doesn't care about beauty and aesthetics or food and clothes. He's talking about this God, the creator, who's made all these things and has filled the world with so much wonder and mystery and beauty and energy and excitement. And he wants a human, above all, to trust him to be the source of all those things, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And, And he names this God as a father best kind of father and as the text keeps going it lands on this in verse 30 you will he not do this for you and the way the sentences are are constructed it that lands with a thud this amazing creative beautiful God knows you and cares for you and uh, provides for you and it creates that responsibility So, so it, it, it goes from adoration over disillusionment. It's like, oh, who am I? You're so beautiful and you care for me. So when Jesus says, don't worry about these things, he's saying, he's not saying like, you shouldn't care about it or have an interest in it. I read one author, which I've never heard this before. This is N.T. Wright, so I think he's legit, but he notes that when Jesus was crucified, text notes that uh, the soldiers uh, casted lots for his tunic. And so he said if it was a bad, ugly tunic, they just would have ripped it apart. But the scripture notes that instead of ripping it apart, so he's like, it probably was some nice threads. I kind of like that idea that Jesus is like, you know what? Son of God, I'm going to have a nice tunic. I care about uh, woven fabrics. A little bit of color in there, I'd like to think. Um, That's beside the point. Um, Jesus is uh, calling us to see and to savor God. Two quick stories. we am going to land this thing real soon here. Two stories about my friends. The first one is here. This is also my wife. Um, on Amy's bedside table, there's a book called Nature Fix. Uh, Amy loves the outdoors. She forages. She's always trying to get us out there. And there's a funny thing in being married to her now. Twelve, I forgot on the spot here. This is bad form. 2002, <laughs> 16 years. Boy, uh, so being married for 16 years, uh, there's a crazy thing that happens where well, we've been in a Soyuz, and she finds a bunch of rose hips to forge. She goes, ah, I knew, I knew I was gonna find rose hips. I'm like what? How did you know? She said I've been praying. So, you pray for rose hips? Yeah, yeah, I pray for rose hips so she can make tinctures and tea. We'll, we'll drive through the Rocky Mountains and she won't sleep because she needs to see animals. She's got a very special connection to deer. And uh, we'll, a deer will surprise us. And she said, I knew, I knew we were going to see a deer today. Like, How did you know we are going to see deer? She said, Because God knows it's really important to me to see animals. And I was asking, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so the, uh, about 16 years of this, so like an ongoing <laughs> provision of deers and bears, and all kinds <laughs> of animals, and rose hip and wild mint. It's all out there and she has absolute confidence that God is generous and gives her what she needs. This is what she's interested in. God gives it to her. Another story. It's my friend John. I just saw him a couple of uh, weeks ago in New York. John is standing on the top of uh, where we were hanging out. This is a building in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, John's been uh, pastor in the city for 12 years. Really hard years. Him and his friend Dave Are involved in this thing called Praxis and it's an organization to help young entrepreneurs uh, in in startups and to have a a kingdom vision in doing that and so John and Dave said you know we've been bouncing around the city in Manhattan we're planning not to leave We're, we're like even after the kids move out we are putting a stake in the ground in New York and they said we really need to get some property we need some real estate and so they put a deck together and made a presentation Uh, for uh, kind of a a space for community that mix kind of uh, prayer, entrepreneurship, and housing. The first person they go to, the guy says, yeah, I totally get it. I love the vision. Uh, I'm in. The next week, John's walking by this building that has that blue scaffolding that's always wrapped around, and it's down. He sees it's for lease. Twenty days later, this guy uh, just bought the building outright in cash. I won't say how much. It is. It just starts with M and ends in aliens, and there's a ton of those. And, uh, and so this this guy, this friend, buys the building. on the main, It's seven floors, On the main floor is a place they're devoting to for 27, 24-7 prayer. Uh, their church, um, every morning at 8 o'clock, people gather for worship, maybe 15, 20 people. That's the first floor. Second floor, the guy who bought it, his wife's the spiritual director, and so the second floor is... The, spiritual direction uh, offices third floor is the practice the entrepreneur offices then the fourth fifth and sixth floors are personal residence for the three families and the seventh floor is a guest suite in Manhattan for people who n- not need a place to live so he's telling me about this and I really I wasn't jealous even though that I mean I can't imagine brand new building gifted John, you're getting everything you've dreamed for. He goes, oh, mate, that's not even the end of it. John became a Christian when he was 17 in Adelaide. And uh, after he became a Christian, he became a butcher. And uh, he moved out of the house at 17, and he got an apartment above the butcher shop. And he would pray in his apartment that God, he wanted to be part of an awakening of the church in the West. And so he, he would pray that God would open a door for him to get into America he went down to a poster shop in Adelaide because he wanted a poster to put above his mantle so that when he was praying in his living room he could look at the poster and uh, cry that God would open a way for him to be part of the revitalization of the church in our day. And uh, John said recently his mom found a whole bunch of old camcorder tapes that he thought were lost and at that time he was filming everything. He had his first sermon, he was filming Uh, His, that apartment above the butcher shop, he says, Lance, there was footage in my apartment, and the footage went by uh, the mantle. And I rewinded it, and I paused, and the poster is the exact street that the building is on. It's it's the same street. Uh, And so when I was asking God to make a way, just bold, audacious prayers, to make a way for me to get into the States, Uh, And I'm looking at an image, that was the image that we're, that's the street I'm living on. Now here's the thing, when it's your friends, you can't discount the stories. (laughs) Because you know they're not lying to you. And I was just like shaking my head. So there's a generous God who provides rose hips and deer sightings. And there's a generous God who, 24 years, John has been sowing into that prayer. 20, costly, one direction, 24 years and it's answered. The last thing is to seek first the kingdom. Seek first. Make this your priority. You put the world first and all the treasures, well, moths and corrosion and all that. It's not a good strategy. You put God first. Food, clothing, beauty, sometimes rose hips and even Manhattan buildings apparently are thrown in. These are good things. They make, at best, a good second or a fifth, but a horrible first. Seek first. I've been hearing the challenge this week for me is seek first, lands not second. Not as an add-on, like an augment to your life. Seek first, make this the pursuit, the thing you're chasing. You go, well, which kingdom are we even talking about? So summarize, two visions of life. What kind of world is this? Is it a world of abundance or a world of scarcity? It's two, two ways to live. slide. Will there be enough on the first? Yes, it's on God to provide and ensure my safety. Or no, it's on me and the world is dangerous and therefore I must control provision and safety. Next slide. Who is king? Who or what is the source of my security and joy? Jesus or treasures of every kind? Approval, bitcoin, my sexy body. I wasn't ready about myself, but my investments. (laughs) Next. What's it like to live under their rule? Each king a kingdom and a way of life, it's, it's active trusting, or it's anxious striving. And where does this vision for life lead? On one hand, it's gratitude and generosity, I'm free to love and serve others, or it's entitlement and greed, I'm enslaved by fear and self interest. Two visions. So to summarize, I just want to gesture in a few areas that may just be like do an attention audit of the week Um, what have I been looking at actually looking at this week what has been shaping my imagination if I'm saying I have no sense of the presence of God in my life I just can't see God trace that back what have you been attending to what have you been looking at learning to practice the presence of God in the people and the presence of people in the presence of things takes work. C, savor. This is adoration over disillusionment. Rehearse and retell the goodness of God. Certainly this is through the, the story of scripture and prayer, but also means about getting outside. So a little piece of homework could just be be immersed in Lynn Canyon rather than just being immersed in West Georgia Street this week. Just get out. Get out. Immerse yourself in a river. And feel it, and let it flow of your body. Feed love and faith within you. Study, savor, adoration, worship. Like Lindsay was saying, in the middle of the day, practice worship. Third, seek. This is pursuit over passivity. Making Seeking first the kingdom um, to prioritize your time, your talent, your treasure. So, thanks for staying uh, with me here. I, that was me trying to go fast. I don't know how, how much I skipped there, so just let you know. Okay, skipped a lot. Um, so I'm going to invite the band to come, and let's let's do this. Non hype, non pressure, but remembering that Jesus both announces the kingdom and demonstrates the kingdom. So what we've heard about this alternative kingdom that consists of trust, not being anxious, relying on the generosity of God. So the kingdom of God is not just a matter of talk, but of power. And that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Let's practice weakness this morning. A couple of things. Uh, I want to invite you to respond. Uh, and a few particular people. Uh, if any of you are, you feel ready to enter the kingdom this morning. Jesus' invitation is reimagine, repent, turn kingdoms at hand. If you've been in church for a long time or this is your first time and you're ready to enter the kingdom, today would be a good day. Today would be a good day to start seeking. Um, The second kind of person is for those who have particular financial fear. As I was praying for our time together, it was heavy on my heart, but there's some of us who we can hear this announcement of the kingdom of God, but we say, you know, at the end of the day, I'm locked. I'm actually trapped in financial fear. You can have financial fear whether you have a lot or a little, okay? So I want to invite us to do, uh, To we're going to go to the table, we're going to go to prayer time. And if you are a person who has financial fear, I invite you to come. And for us to join you in asking that the generous God that Jesus speaks about could meet your needs. The God of rose hips and even Manhattan buildings could meet you. And I want to ask those of you who have faith, you have a backstory with God, and you've seen God provide you for you, that you'd come and pray for people. Okay? So if you need, first of all, if you have faith, we're not saying you're a superhero. We know your lives are messed up in other areas. Okay? We get it. So you're not bragging. Let's just be done with that. Good. So, but if you have faith, if you have a confidence in God, like Amy's confidence about rose hips, that kind of thing, and you'd like to pray for someone, just come and stand along the wall your back, and if you need prayer, find if you've, for anything, financial fear, then come and you can face someone there and we'll pray for you, okay, so that's that's the invitation, real real open, but it'd be great to not just announce the kingdom, but together to demonstrate the power of the spirit and that power to be perfect in weakness, which is the scary thing, but we're, we're getting better at weakness and vulnerability, so, God, as we come to the table, uh, we want to show up as we really are. Thank you that your power is made perfect in weakness, which this table reminds us that it's in your broken body and poured out wine and blood that there's healing. Thank you that this is at the center of our faith, this this kind of brokenness made whole. And so as we consider this joyous announcement that Jesus gives about this alternative vision, about this very good king, We don't want to be just left as admirers. We want to be participants and actively walking into this. So for those of us who are particularly afraid, we pray for deliverance this morning. Your perfect love would drive out fear. And there would be an increase of generosity uh, and funding and giving and risk-taking. Because your, your perfect love keeps driving. Those of us who have a story of, of you being faithful to us, help us to be bold, to just freely give whatever we've received. So we thank you for your good kingdom. Would you give us the grace to see and savor and seek in Jesus' name? We'll come to the table. You